Wanderers, and welcome to Wicked Wanderers Podcast. I am your wicked hostess, Jacqueline, and you may be wondering what this podcast is all about. Each week, we will travel to a different destination. I will discuss a haunted place, some dark tourism, and some fun and unique things to do while we are there. So pack your bags. We're going to California. Welcome to the Golden State. California is a huge state. You have the California coast, the mountains, deserts, as well as the redwood forest. Though on the coast, the weather is generally the same, it does get cold in certain places, so always make sure you pack accordingly. The heat is a dry heat, so make sure you have some sunscreen packed and ready to use. Mountain lions, black bears, rattlesnakes, and coyotes are all native to California, so always make sure you are aware of your surroundings. Before we get to our first destination, here are some fun facts and strange laws in California. It is illegal for a woman to wear a house coat and drive. If you leave your Christmas lights up past February 2nd, you will get a $250 fine. If you do not own at least two cows in Blythe, you cannot wear cowboy boots. Guess they don't like posers. If you're in Palm Springs, do not walk your camel down Palm Canyon Drive between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. It is illegal. In Arcadia, peacocks have the right-of-way in roads and driveways. In Walnut, you cannot fly a kite higher than 10 feet. In Glendale, you cannot jump in or out of a moving car. How does one jump into a moving car? And what if you got kidnapped? Are you not allowed to escape? I have so many questions about this law. In LA, you can't hunt moths underneath the street lamps. In the Carmel city limits, women can't wear high heels, but nothing about men wearing them. In San Francisco, you can't carry bread, pastries, or cakes in an open container or a basket. If you lose your canary, you can't whistle to look for it past 7 p.m. in Berkeley. Sorry, guys. No bullying in the streets of Chico. If you plan on walking your elephant on Market Street in San Francisco, it's illegal to do so unless it's on a leash. You can't own more than two dogs or cats in San Jose. That's a really shitty law. Well, if you're classified as ugly, you can't legally walk down any street in San Francisco. I wonder who determines this. California has the most national parks in the United States. The tallest tree in the world is a 380-foot redwood in California. Yosemite has the tallest waterfall in the world. California does have some weird laws, but there is plenty to do there, and this is a state you should definitely visit. And our first destination in California is Anaheim. Don't worry, California is a huge state. There will be several episodes on places to travel to here. It was founded in 1857 by 50 German families located in Orange County, California. 
Anaheim is the heart of California and not too far away from the 42 miles of beaches. A city of imagination. And our first destination is Disneyland. The first theme park was opened by Walt Disney in 1955. Disney brings in 72 million people a year and is a major tourist attraction. Known as one of the happiest places on earth, but it is also one of the most haunted places as well. There have been several tragic events that have happened in Disneyland and the spirits have stayed. Mark Maples was a 15-year-old boy from Long Beach, California, and he lost his life at Disneyland. While riding the Matterhorn bobsled ride, Maples or the person he was with unbuckled his seatbelt. Maples stood up when the ride was close to the peak of the mountain. He was thrown off the ride. Suffering from a skull fracture, broken ribs, and internal bleeding, he died three days later. 19-year-old Thomas Guy Cleveland from Northern California died in June 1966 while trying to sneak in the park via the monorail track. He intended to jump down from the tracks and was struck by a train that dragged him 40 feet down the track to his death. August 1967, Ricky Yama, age 17, was on the People Mover and he decided to jump from car to car. He slipped and was crushed to death by the wheels. In June 1973, Bogdan Delarot, 18 years old from Brooklyn, managed to stay on Tom Sawyer's Island after closing time with his little brother. After a few hours, they got bored and decided they wanted to leave the island. Instead of getting the attention of a cast member, they decided to swim across. Unfortunately, his brother did not know how to swim. While swimming across with his brother on his back, Delarot went down and he drowned. Thankfully, a cast member saw his brother and rescued him from the water. Delarot's body wasn't found until the next morning. Gerardo Gonzalez from San Diego was killed on the People Mover on June 7, 1980. He had just graduated and was out on grad night. He got up from his seat, jumping to a different cart while entering the super speed tunnel. He was crushed and dragged a few hundred feet until the ride was able to stop. June 4th, 1983, Philip Stratton, an 18-year-old from Albuquerque, New Mexico, drowned in the rivers of America on grad night. It was also his 18th birthday. Stratton and his friend were both drinking and they snuck into the cast-only area. After taking a rubber maintenance boat, they struck a rock near Tom Sawyer Island. Stratton fell in. He drowned while his friend went to go look for help. Dolly Young, woman from Fremont, California. She died on January 3rd, 1984 on the Matterhorn. She was thrown from her seat and hit by an oncoming bobsled and she was decapitated. Her seatbelt was not on, but it is unknown if she deliberately unfastened it herself. On Christmas Eve, 1988, a cast member and two guests were injured and one died when the rope on the ship Columbia tore loose while docking. The metal cleat struck the heads of the guests and Lon Dawson, age 33, and his wife were both hit while waiting for the ride. Lon Dawson was declared brain dead and died two days later. 
This was the first death that was due to negligence of the park and prompted greater security procedures. Marcelo Torres from Gardenia, California, on September 5, 2003, age 22, died when the locomotive separated from its train along the tunnel area of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. He bled to death after suffering from blunt force trauma to the chest. On July 8, 1974, Deborah Gale Stone was killed when she became caught between the rotating wall and stationary wall on the America Sings attraction. She was a staff member that was killed. I had no idea this many people died at Disneyland. There have been several suicides at the Disney resorts as well. The People Movers was shut down for good August 21st, 1995. But the Matterhorn, Tom Sawyer's Island, the Columbia, and Thunder Mountain Road are still open and running. Of course, there are a lot of hauntings at Disneyland. And the first one is Walt Disney. Yes, the man himself is still at the park. His old apartment above the fire station is one spot he has been seen. An employee was done cleaning and turned the lights off. Then she noticed the lights were turned back on. This happened back and forth several times until she heard a voice say, Don't forget, I'm still here. The lights now stay on for him. The storage room behind the magic shop on Main Street was Walt's old office. Cold spots and eerie feelings have been felt by employees. Walt loved to smoke and his wife never wanted him to do it in front of the kids, so he would sneak behind his old apartment and smoke. Cast members will smell smoke and when they check to see who is smoking back there, they find nobody. There's no cigarette butts or any evidence that anybody was back there. It is believed this is Walt. Several people have reported seeing Walt standing on the drawbridge outside the castle waving to them. There have been so many sightings of Walt. I could talk about them for hours. But let's get on to our next spirit, Dolly. Dolly Young, who died on the Matterhorn, haunts the ride. Cast members feel somebody watching them and strange noises when they do their walkthrough of the ride at the end of the day. Others have seen her. She is most active in the area that she died, which they call Dolly's Dip in her honor. But is this really honoring her? I mean, she suffered a horrible death. She was decapitated there. The boy at Haunted Mansion. It is said a mother scattered the ashes of her son at Haunted Mansion. This was a ride her son loved. Of course, she did not have permission to do so. Since this has happened, a boy can be heard crying for his mother at the end of the ride near the exit. He has also been spotted at the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. That's awful. I wonder if the mom knows that the ghost of her son is crying and looking for her. Mr. One Way. On Space Mountain, there is a large man with red hair and a red face who will sit next to single riders. He will disappear before the riders reach the final tunnel of the ride. There is the woman in white dressed in a 19th century gown. A female spirit has been spotted on Main Street after dark. She isn't connected to the park but may have passed away on the land previously. She seems to know where she's going, and she helps the lost children get to the Disneyland Baby Care Center. 
so they can be reunited with their parents. Deborah Stone on America Sings, which closed in 1988. Cast members that were working on the attraction would hear her voice warning them to be careful if they got too close to the walls, which they said is Deborah, who of course was crushed to death by this attraction. The monorail ghost. This spirit is thought to be Thomas Guy Cleveland, who died on the monorail. He only appears at night on the tracks and disappears when the train comes. The spirit in the river. A ghost is seen in the water at Tom Sawyer's Island. It is said to be Delarot who drowned there. The ghost train. Daryl Wagner, who is a former cast member, says the railroad is haunted and this typically occurs late at night. A train will show on the board and a whistle can be heard, but there is no train on the tracks. And lastly is the man with the cane. Like the woman in white, he is not connected to the park but the land. A plane crashed in 1940 in what is now Disneyland. The pilot died. This pilot just so happened to walk with a cane. Cast members see an apparition of a man walking with a cane by the loading docks. With everyone who has died at Disneyland, it is no surprise that this place is haunted. Disneyland has several new attractions in 2022-2023. Hopefully, nobody will die on them, which include Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Mickey's Toontown will reopen, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, and the Avengers Campus at the California Adventure Park. Disneyland is something to experience at least once, but always be safe and take precaution. You do not want to be the next spirit roaming Disneyland. While you're in the area, there are several fun things to do other than Disneyland, Anaheim's Packing District, stop by the Packing House, which was once the Sunkiss Building. It stood abandoned for decades and is now a cool multi-story food hall with more than 30 artisan foods and beverage merchants. From Indian cuisine to gourmet grilled cheese, there is something here for everyone. Listen to some live music and enjoy the great food at this amazing place. The Packard Building, which is next door, used to be a luxury car showroom in 1925 and is now home to Unami Burger and the Anaheim Brewery. I love it when they turn old buildings into places so cool. Of course, go for a hike. Carbon Canyon Park. It's $3 per vehicle Monday through Friday and $5 on the weekend. You cannot beat that price in California. Nothing is cheap there. This 124 acre park you can spend an entire day in and not spend too much money doing so. They have picnic areas, bike trails, horse trails, fishing, volleyball, tennis courts, and the best part is there's three acres of the mighty redwoods. This is the only grove of redwoods in Orange County. Bring your furry best friend with you as long as they are on a leash. Go surfing. This is on my bucket list. I want to learn how to surf. I'm on the East Coast, so we really don't get any waves. I was actually just in California not too long ago for the iHeart Music Festival. And unfortunately, it was raining and cold, so I couldn't learn how to surf that day. The waves were way too big. They were not letting anybody in the water. 
I'm talking about 20 foot plus waves. It was insane, but we had a great time. Some of the best surfing spots are at the Huntington Beach Pier, which hosts the U.S. opening of surfing every year. Watch out for stingrays that also love the sandy bottom beach. Huntington Beach is a iconic beach. If you're looking for something more local, go to Bolsa Chica State Beach. This spot is great if you're a beginner or a pro. Don't know how to surf? No worries. There are several surfing schools that operate there. Corky Carroll Surf School and Calaboo Surf School. Go to the Laguna Beach Secret Pools. These pools were built in 1929 by Hollywood director Edward Griffith. A mistake was made when they constructed the pools. They filled up with tide water and they were abandoned. A warning, you have to head down about 250 steps to get to this area. So don't forget anything at the car. The Stairmaster workout is well worth it. Sandy white beaches, clear water. Waves crashing into the pools. It's a paradise. When you get down the stairs, the pools are towards the north end of the beach. Turn left at the bottom of the stairs. When you are at the beach, check out the tide pools filled with starfish, mussels, crabs, sea urchins, and so much more. Please use caution when you go here. This is not recommended for kids or anyone who is not a great swimmer. You will need to walk through some tide pools as well. Never go into any caves during high tide. People have died doing so. This place is one of my favorite places. It's the Mosaic Tile House. This place is unique and fascinating and only open Saturdays from 12 to 3 p.m. by reservation. This house is owned by local artist duo Sherry Pan and her husband Gonzalo Duran. This house is something you have never seen before. It is not a well-known place. Walking into this home is like walking into a piece of art. Sherry creates these beautiful, vibrant tiles. Red, purple, yellow, pink, turquoise, white. Every color you can think of. And then Gonzalo shatters them. They spread them all over every inch of their stucco home, transforming it into a magnificent kaleidoscope. Words can't even explain how spectacular this place is. It's like Alice in Wonderland, Secret Garden, Vincent Van Gogh, and Picasso all had a baby. Pan even shows her dark imagination with a black fridge stuffed with dolls. I absolutely love it. I would love to have a house like this. Please Google the Tile House in Venice, California. If you are looking for something unique to do, this is it. It is located at 1116 Palms Boulevard in Venice, California. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery is the eternal home for Hollywood celebrities and the elite. The final resting place of Johnny Ramone, Dee Dee Ramone, Mickey Rooney, Chris Cornell, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, Estelle Getty, Terry, a.k.a. Toto. Yes, the dog from Wizard of Oz, plus so many more. At the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, you can catch a movie during the summer. They have cemetery screenings 
where thousands of people come and watch movies on the big screen under the stars in the cemetery. This is so fun. Parking is free for bikes and motorcycles. It's $10 for cars. Make sure you get there early to get a good spot. Tickets are sold at the gate and sell out fast. But you can buy tickets online and skip the hassle. The Urban Lights, located at the entrance of Los Angeles County Museum of Art. There are over 202 vintage street lamps. Take a stroll down LA's Miracle Mile. This is opened during the day and at night. This would be a fun romantic date or a cool place to take some photos. I could go on about all the fun and unique places to go to, but I don't think you want to listen to me for hours. So it is time for our final destination and my favorite part. Let's get wicked. We are not going too far, so let's mosey on over to Spawn Movie Ranch. Spawn Movie Ranch was bought by George Spawn in 1948. For decades, Spawn Movie Ranch was one of Hollywood's premier western movie filming locations, accommodating everybody from the Lone Ranger to Judy Garland. The Outlaw, Duel in the Sun, Bonanza, and Zorro were all filmed here. George Spawn was known as the go-to man for Western props, and Westerns were huge in the 1940s and the 1950s. They dominated the film industry. By the 1960s, Western movies were becoming less popular. And this would be the downfall for George's ranch. To help provide income, George added some more sets and some rental horses. The ranch would be a popular place with locals to go horseback riding, but it would eventually become deserted. George continued to live there, but was going blind. The ranch would become the home base of the Manson family. Yes, Charles Manson. He was born November 12th, 1934 to a 16-year-old mother named Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati, Ohio. His father, Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., was not a part of his life. Manson would get his last name when his mom married a drunk named William Eugene Manson. I'm not going to get into Manson's childhood, which was rough, simply because it would take too long. I'm going to discuss what led Manson to Spawn Ranch. Charles Manson moved to San Francisco in 1967 with help from a fellow inmate that also taught him how to play the guitar. At this point in time, Charles had been married and divorced twice and had two children. Guess what their names were? Of course, Charles. So while being homeless, and begging in San Francisco, he met Mary Brenner and moved in with her. Not too long after living with Brenner, he would bring 18 other women into her apartment. That's a lot of people. I believe that the free love movement and the fact that communes were so common, as well as drugs, is why Charles Manson and the family ended up doing what they did. It was the perfect era for him to act upon his plans. If this happened nowadays, 
he would have been caught and it would have been shut down real quick. Charles would become a guru in San Francisco where he would preach about how Satan and Jesus would come together when the world ended. They would judge humanity. He was a very persuasive man and soon had a following which would become the Manson family. The Manson family was mostly women and by the end of the summer in 1967, Manson and some of his followers got a bus. They decked it out in the usual hippie fashion with rugs and pillows and they moved to several different places including Malibu, the Venice Coast, Topanga Canyon, and on May 26, 1968, the drummer for the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson, picked up two of the Manson girls that were hitchhiking, and he brought them back to his place for sex. Within 24 hours, Charles and the rest of his family moved into Wilson's log cabin-style estate. That was pretty quick. Manson and Wilson hit it off. Manson would play music for Wilson, and they would also play together. Wilson, of course, didn't mind the company of all the Manson girls, and of course, there was a lot of drugs and sex. Wilson would take care of the whole family. One time, he took everybody to the doctors after everybody caught gonorrhea after having group sex. Wow. The family also gave Wilson everything he needed during these times. Sex drugs, freedom, and adventure. Of course, all good things always come to an end, and the Manson family had overstayed their welcome. Manson and Wilson were still on good terms, and on August 8, 1968, Wilson and Charles recorded some music. You see, Charles wanted to be a famous musician. It was his dream. But at the studio, Manson pulled a knife on Wilson and his team, accusing them of messing with his music, and he didn't like it. Good job, Manson. Way to kill any connection you had to achieve your music career, you dumbass. Since the family had been kicked out of Wilson's home, they did need a new place to stay. Susan Sadie Akins, one of the notorious Manson family members, found Spawn Ranch, and they moved onto the property on August 16, 1968. The ranch was isolated and falling apart. George, the owner, needed help. He would let Manson and his commune stay at the ranch, for free if they took care of the ranch for him. Sounds like a pretty good deal. George was fond of Manson. I mean, he had no idea who he really was, so you can't blame him, and he was also blind. On the ranch, Mary Brenner gave birth to Manson's son, Valentine Michael Manson. They nicknamed him Pooh Bear, that poor kid. This was truly a perfect place for Manson to run his cult. They were isolated from the rest of the world, and they followed their own rules, which was, of course, to serve Manson. LSD and Belladonna were drugs frequently used by Manson and his family. Meanwhile, Manson would preach about being the reincarnation of Jesus and the prophet of a race war that would destroy America. On August 18, 1968, the family would acquire a second home base at the Baker Ranch in Death Valley, owned by one of the Manson girls' grandmothers. This was so they could prep for Manson's race war apocalypse. 
Clearly, he is losing his mind at this point and falling deeper into madness. Nancy Warren, who was associated with the family, and her grandma, Sita Delaney, were found beaten to death on October 13th. 1968. Warren was eight months pregnant at the time. They were found garroted and bound by a leather thong necklace, which was a common item worn by the family. Is this a glimpse of what will come? On December 2nd, 1968, the Beach Boys recorded a version of Manson's song, Cease to Exist. They changed the lyrics and renamed it to Learn Not to Love, only crediting Wilson for the lyrics. This would enrage Manson. They were stealing his music and they were living his dream. Manson, as a form of retaliation or as a threat, snuck into Wilson's home and left a bullet on his bed. People, please lock your doors and lock your windows. Another associate of the family, Marina Habe, was kidnapped from her parents' driveway and found dead two days later. She was stabbed and beaten. There sure seems to be like a lot of people associated with the family dying. Three months later, a man only known as the Old Hermit was beaten to death by some hippies that matched Manson's description. The Old Hermit said he had hidden gold and whoever did this wanted that gold. His final words before he died was, I didn't tell them where it was. That is so sad. As we all know, Manson thought he was a rock star, and he wanted to be one so badly. He knew a music producer named Mulcher. Manson and his right-hand man named Tex actually had partied at Mulcher's house before. So Manson decided to go to the home of Mulcher on March 23rd, 1969. He was not going to give up on his dream, but Mulcher had moved out three months prior. And this was actually the home of Sharon Tate. Sharon had told Manson that Mulcher no longer lived there. So he left. At this point in time, Manson couldn't stay out of trouble. He had allegations against him for raping a 16-year-old girl and had been arrested for beating his wife. There's no surprise there. But was there luck for Manson still? Mulcher had received the message that he was looking for him. Could this be Manson's big break? Mulcher went to the ranch to talk to him, but he was not impressed at all with Manson's singing abilities and turned him down on producing a record with him. This did not go over well with Manson. Manson claimed that big promises were made, but they never came through. Manson also said that Mulcher was only in it for the money. It was clear that Manson held Mulcher responsible for killing his music career and keeping his music from the world. Manson was betrayed and was so filled with rage, LSD, and belladonna. At this point in time, Manson ran the ranch, and a lot of illegal things were happening there. Manson wanted more men to join his cult, so he would use the girls to bring the men in. He would pimp the girls out. Tex Watson was a family member, and Manson's 
pop guy. Tex was also a drug dealer. One day, Tex robbed another drug dealer, an African-American man named Bernard Crow. In response to being robbed, Crow allegedly threatened to kill everybody on the ranch. If you haven't figured it out by now, Manson was super racist. And being the racist piece of shit he was, he shot Crow at his Hollywood apartment on July 1st. The news, also being racist pieces of shit, said that Crow was a Black Panther, which was an African-American political party, even though he wasn't. Thankfully, Crow did survive. When Manson had heard that they thought Crow was a Black Panther, he was thrilled. This would fuel the fire to his race war. Meanwhile, the body of another person associated with the family would be found. 16-year-old Mark Waltz was found dead. He had spent the summer with the family, and his brother would accuse the family of his death and swore revenge. Manson was becoming paranoid and wanted to secure the ranch. He lured Danny DiCarlo, the leader of the Straight Satan's biker gang, to the ranch with the promise of sex from the Manson girls. He now had armed bikers to protect the ranch. The bikers had drugs, and one day, a mescaline deal went bad. Gary Hinman said that the drugs were fake. The straight Satan's gang was furious. Manson recruited Bobby, Bruce Davis, Susie Atkins, and Mary Brenner, the mother of his child, to torture and kill Hinman. And what Manson said to do is what they would do. For three days, they tortured Hinman. Manson even showed up and slashed his face and ear with a samurai sword. Where the fuck did he get a samurai sword? Manson, of course, wouldn't implicate himself in a murder, so he left and told his murderous family members to finish the job. Bobby stabbed Hinman with the sword and killed him. On the walls of Hinman's place, they wrote Political Piggy and Drew a panther paw, which was a black panther symbol in Hinman's blood. They wanted to pin the murder on the black panthers. After the murder, Bobby's pregnant girlfriend and a family member fled the ranch and snitched about the murder. This led to Bobby being arrested. And you know what? Good for her. Bobby was a musician. He was also an actor in a few films as well. He also worked with the stylist Jay Sebring. Put a pin in that for now. Bobby also knew Hinman. He even crashed at his home sometimes, and so did other family members. According to Bobby, he didn't go to Hinman's place to kill him just for repayment. But there was a fight between Manson and Hinman. Hinman threatened to call police, and this is what would end his life. This really shows how much control Manson had over the family. Manson was spiraling out of control. It was his duty to start a race war, which he called Helter Skelter, after a famous Beatles song. Manson thought the song had a coded prophecy in which racists 
and non-racist whites would be manipulated into destroying each other over the treatment of blacks. Manson was so crazed, he thought the Beatles were speaking to him through their music. Yeah, okay, Manson. The Beatles had no idea who you were. You lived on a ranch in the middle of nowhere. I don't see how he thought he was so special to be able to get the Beatles' attention. It's ridiculous. Manson would teach his family all about Helter Skelter, and this would lead to a bloody, murderous spree. August 9, 1969, tragedy would strike. Manson had reached his boiling point, and remember Melcher, the guy who turned Manson down? and ultimately killed his dreams of being a famous musician? Well, let's say he didn't forget, and Manson wasn't a forgiving man. He ordered his devout family members, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Kernwinkle, and Linda Caspian to go to 10050 Celio Drive. He ordered them to murder everybody there, and to make it as gruesome as possible. Now, I don't know if Manson just didn't remember that Mulcher didn't live there, or he was doing this as a threat towards him, but Manson's family members always did what they were told to do. That night, Tex climbed a telephone pole near the entrance gate and cut the phone line to the house. They then parked the car at the bottom of the hill and entered the property through the bushes. They then saw headlights. Stephen Parent had been leaving the residence. He was visiting the caretaker, William Gerritsen, who lived in the guest house. Tex approached Stephen's car and pointed his twenty-two at Stephen, who begged for his life. Tex stabbed Stephen in the hand and then shot him four times in the chest and in the stomach. The women then pushed Stephen's car with his body in it up the hill. There were four people in the house that night. Sharon Tate, a beautiful actress that was eight and a half months pregnant. Jay Sebring, famous hairdresser. He also knew Bobby, the family member who got arrested for Hinman's murder. Wojciech Frykowski, a famous photographer. And Abigail Folger, the heiress of Folger Coffee. A little bit after midnight, Tex would cut the screen to a window and enter the home. He was the first one in the house and he opened the door for Susan Atkins and Patricia Kernwinkle. Linda Caspian was instructed to stay with Stephen's car. Frykowski, who was sleeping on the couch, would wake up to them breaking in. Tex went over to Frykowski and started kicking him in the head repeatedly. When Frykowski asked him why he was doing this, Tex said, quote, I am here to do the devil's business. Susan Atkins went and found the other people in the house and brought them into the living room. Tex would tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks and would hang the rope over 
a ceiling beam. Sebring was very upset about how they were treating a very pregnant Tate, and he demanded that they stop. Tex then shot him. I can't imagine how terrified Sharon Tate was seeing her friend get shot, and she was also still tied to him by her neck. Folger was brought into the other room to retrieve her purse. She gave them $70. Sebring still wasn't dead yet, so Tex stabbed him seven times, killing him. Frykowski managed to escape after a scuffle with Susan Atkins, where she stabbed him in the leg, but he made it out the front door. Tex caught him and hit him in the head with his gun multiple times. Linda, who was outside, heard what was going on and said she saw someone coming in attempt to stop what was happening, but it didn't work. Inside, Folger had escaped out a door that led to the pool area, but she didn't make it very far. Patricia Kernwinkle tackled and stabbed her. Tex would come over to where they were and help stab Folger. She was stabbed 28 times. Frykowski, who was still alive, was on the lawn and was still trying to escape. Tex went over there and stabbed him 51 times and hit him over the head 12 times. Tex used so much force, he bent the barrel of his gun and broke the grip. That is absolutely savage. Can you imagine how much force has to be used in order to do that? But they were not done yet. Tate, who was inside, was begging for her child's life, for the family to spare her until she gave birth. But they didn't care. Susan and Tex stabbed her 16 times, killing her in her unborn child. In a quote from All Things Interesting, Susan Atkins said the following, I was alone with that woman, Sharon Tate, she said. Please don't kill me. And I told her to shut up, and I threw her down on the couch. She said, Please let me have my baby. Then Tex Watson came in and said, Kill her, and I killed her. I just stabbed her, and she fell, and I stabbed her again. I don't know how many times. I don't know why I stabbed her. She kept begging and pleading and begging and pleading. And I got sick of listening to it. So I stabbed her. That is absolute pure evil right there. After the murders were committed, Atkins, following Manson's commands, wrote pig on the front door and Tate's blood. Their bodies would be found the next morning. Frykowski and Folger were found on the lawn, and Stephen was in his car. Tate and Sebring were found dead in the living room. It was a gruesome scene, but Manson and his family were not done yet. They would commit another murder the following night. The LaBiancas lived 11 miles away from Tate. Leno and Rosemary LaBianca were grocery store chain owners. After a day out on the lake, they settled in for the night around 1 a.m. Leno was in his recliner in the living room, and Rosemary was already in bed. Tex and Manson entered through the unlocked back door. Again, people, please lock your windows and your doors. 
They woke up Leno by sticking a gun in his face. Manson got Rosemary out of bed and he demanded that they give him money. Manson ordered Tex to take Rosemary back to her bedroom where Tex tied her up and put a pillowcase over her face. They then covered Leno's face with a pillowcase as well. They used a lamp cord to gag his mouth. After this, Manson went outside where he had a car with four family members in it waiting for him. He commanded Patricia Kernwinkle and Leslie Von Hooten to kill them. Manson told Linda Caspian to stay in the car and be a getaway driver. Manson then got back in the car and told Linda to drive. What the fuck? He just left his family members there to commit a crime and not even have a way to escape? That's great of him. Patricia and Leslie walked inside. Tex ordered the girls to go to the bedroom and kill Rosemary. As the girls made their way to the bedroom, Tex began stabbing Leno in the stomach with a bayonet. Where does this guy get all these weapons? I don't understand it. Tex promised he wouldn't harm them. The girls began stabbing Rosemary. She tried to defend herself. She ran around the bedroom trying to get away, but she had a pillowcase over her head and it made it difficult to see. When the girls yelled for help, Tex stopped stabbing Leno and went to the room to help the girls. He plunged a knife into Rosemary and then returned to Leno to continue to stab him. Rosemary was stabbed 41 times and died from a massive hemorrhage from the damage to her neck. Patricia wrote war in Leno's blood on his stomach and then they wrote Helter Skelter, but didn't even spell it right, and Death to Pigs on the wall in the refrigerator. Psychopath Patricia stabbed Leno a few more times before leaving, and she left a carving fork in his stomach. Manson had dropped the three family members. While all this was happening, Manson dropped off the three other family members that were in the car with him at the Venice home of a Lebanese actor, Saladin Nadir. Manson, being the great person that he was, took off, leaving them behind as well, then returned to the Spawn Ranch. According to Linda Caspian, Manson ordered them to murder Nadir, but she claims she intentionally knocked on the wrong door. So they abandoned their plan, but Atkins, being the filth that she is, took a dump on the stairwell. She's just keeping it classy. These people are seriously psycho. Manson and some of the family would flee to the Baker Ranch in Nevada, but they were captured after a group raid on October 10th and October 12th in 1969. Manson was found hiding under a sink. Fucking pussy. At that time, they were being arrested for vandalizing the Death Valley National Monument. The arresting officers had no idea. They just captured mass murderers. Tex fled to Texas and had a separate trial. Manson, Kernwinkle, Tex, Von Hooten, and Atkins were all sentenced to life in prison. There are photos of Susan Atkins, Trisha Kernwinkle, 
and Leslie Von Hooten holding hands, walking down the hallway, going to the pretrial. They didn't give a fuck. Linda Caspian would testify for the prosecution against the family, and since she didn't kill anyone, she got immunity. You would think this is over, right? Wrong. On August 26, 1969, Manson had Donald Shea killed. He was a ranch hand and stunt man who lived on Spawn Ranch long before Manson had ever. Manson thought Shea had reported them to the police, which resulted in a raid on the ranch on August 16th. The family was taken into custody on suspicion of car theft. Shea was also married to an African-American woman, and Manson hated that. Bruce Davis claims that Manson wanted him dead because he was a snitch. So by direct orders of Manson, Bruce Davis, Tex Watson, and Steve Gorgon took Shay for a ride to find car parts in the yard on the ranch. Davis says he sat in the back seat with Gorgon, who then hit Shay with a pipe wrench and Watson stabbed him. They took his body down a hill behind the ranch and stabbed and brutally tortured Shay. Gorgon got sentenced to death for Shay's murder. But on December 23, 1971, Judge James Colts said Gorgon was too stupid and hopped up on drugs to be able to decide anything on his own. And it was really Manson who decided who lived or who died. His sentence was reduced to life in prison. In 1985, he was released on parole and was the only family member convicted of murder to be released. There was still one more family member causing problems. Lynette Fromm, a.k.a. Squeaky. Squeaky wasn't involved in any of the previous murders. After Manson was put in prison, both Squeaky and Sandra Good moved into an apartment in Sacramento so they could be closer to him. On September 5, 1975, Fromm went to the Sacramento Capitol Park dressed in a red robe and packing a loaded Colt 45 gun but with no bullet in the chamber. She wanted to talk to President Ford about the Redwoods. She then pulled the 45 out and pointed it at President Ford. Of course, she didn't get very far. Secret Service took her out quick. She claims she knew there wasn't a bullet in the chamber, and investigators did find it on her bathroom floor. She was arrested and sent to life in prison. She also escaped federal prison camp in West Virginia. She did this because she wanted to see Manson, who had testicular cancer. This woman is still wrapped around his finger, even in jail. Fromm was released on parole from the Federal Medical Center on August 14, 2009, and now lives in New York State. So watch out for her. On Sunday, November 19, 2017, Manson died from acute heart failure, but was ill for at least a year before he passed. Good. Fuck him. George Spawn died on September 22, 1974. After his death, 
there was a wildfire at the ranch, which burnt down the main ranch and the outbuildings. The Spawn Movie Ranch is now part of the California's Santa Susana Pass State Historic Park. You can access the ranch via the old Santa Susana Stage Road. You can look up the trail on All Trails app, or you can ask somebody who works at the park and they will tell you how to get there. Or you can drive there by taking 118 West and exit the Santa Susana Pass. Once you take the exit, you will cross over a bridge and then turn left. Afterwards, drive down the road until you see a church located at the Rocky Peak on top of a hill on the left. You will have to park at the church and walk across the street. There is a guardrail, and the guardrail has a path that leads to the ranch. The road that you will need to cross is a very busy road, so please be cautious when crossing the road. I recommend getting there via trail from the park. Take a walk on the land where an evil cult leader lived with his murderous family. Visit the Manson Cave where he and his family members used to hang out. The GPS coordinates are 34.2728 degrees north and 118.6230 degrees west. Check out a couple of cool carvings in the rocks around the cave, some old car parts left behind by the family, and lots of nifty garbage left by wannabe followers. Explore the land that housed one of the most notorious cults that changed Hollywood forever and claimed so many innocent lives. And this concludes my episode of Wicked Wanderers. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you have been to any of the places mentioned or had any experiences. Please email those to me at wickedwandererspodcast at gmail. You can follow me on Instagram at wicked underscore wandererspodcast. You can donate to the cause on my Patreon at patreon.com slash wickedwanderers. I write, record, edit, and produce this podcast all by myself. There is a bonus episode on the Patreon if you wish to join a monthly subscription. And as always, wander more and stay wicked. (laughs) 